Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. This is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the Internet. Now, I said at the beginning, it's all kicking off, and I didn't just mean uh, Old Trafford, but well done, lads. It's kicking off everywhere. Let's start with the coronavirus. It was once a hallmark of the British people that they had a stiff upper lip. Now it seems their backsides are twitching because they're literally fighting each other in supermarket aisles for, of all things, toilet paper. People are stealing hand gel from the toilets of charity shops. People are robbing each other of things they think are going to be running out in the midst of this hype, this extraordinary panic that is spreading around the world. Now, I'm no medical expert, still less a scientist, but I do know that we breathe in millions, actually hundreds of millions, of viruses every day of our lives, every day of our lives. I do appreciate that this one is particularly virulent. I do appreciate that its lethality is greater than the common cold or the influenza that we get every year. I realize that the numbers are increasing exponentially. But I have to question the way that the media is fanning the flames of hysteria and panic here and around the world. I watched football as I do every weekend. The players are not even allowed to fist bump each other before the game, although they all hug each other at the end of the game. And there's 80,000 people breathing viruses on them from the stadium crowds. It's not immediately clear what is achieved by not allowing Frank Lampard to shake the hands of Carlo Ancelotti. As a matter of fact, um, Chelsea gave them a good tanking this afternoon. But it's not immediately clear why uh, it's spreading so virulently in certain places. In the north of Italy, where the football is now being played, I understand, behind closed doors and where whole cities, whole regions are being placed in quarantine. The last news broadcast I heard said 11 million people in Lombardy are now in quarantine. They're not allowed to leave their place. And in Korea, the numbers are vaultingly increasing. And in Iran, where no less than two members of parliament have died, and a close advisor to the uh, the supreme leader uh, of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, has also expired. China seems to be on top of the problem. The number of new cases in China is falling, but it's rising, uh, as I say, at quite a rate uh, around the rest of the world, including here in Britain, where the British government seems to have made no real preparation 
for anything at all, beyond telling people to self-isolate themselves uh, or get along to a hospital where they're already treating people on trolleys and where there's absolutely no spare capacity. And if you happen to work in a place, I suppose like me, I can't self-isolate because if I don't show up, I don't get paid. And that's the case for millions of people in Britain. And then there's the United States of America, where there's no health service at all. And where the candidate who is running to institute a national health service in the United States is being caricatured as a Russian agent. Although he's Jewish, caricatured as an anti-Semite. He's being caricatured as too old for the job when his only remaining rival literally cannot string a sentence together or even properly deliver his own name. The cognitive challenges of Joe Biden will be under the microscope with my colleague Rachel Blevins from RT America in just a few minutes. What's going to happen now on Super Tuesday, which happened actually not to work out in quite the way the media spun it. First of all, there are real challenges and arguments and question marks about just how well Joe Biden actually did do on Super Tuesday. In the exit poll in Massachusetts, for example, uh, he um, was 5%, a full 5% behind what he actually got in the ballot box. And voter suppression amongst young black people in Texas is now a thing. Guess what? Young black people in Texas were almost all of them there to vote for Bernie Sanders. But even if you accept that the results delivered by Super Tuesday are as they were reported to be, it's neck and neck, effectively, between Sanders and Biden. And so people will remorselessly focus on these cognitive challenges and the creepy, sleepy behavior uh, of Joe Biden. And people who say it's not very nice, uh, people who say it's, it's exploitative and so on, well, obviously, in ordinary circumstances, they'd have a point. Nobody wants to make fun on someone with dementia. But if you're the Democratic Party and you're thinking of putting up a demented man against Donald Trump, don't ask yourself what I'm saying and doing about it. Ask yourself what Donald Trump and the big money behind him is going to do about it. Ask yourself if Donald Trump will not play with Joe Biden as the cat plays with the mouse immediately prior to killing and eating it. That's the image you have to keep in your mind. It was, as I said, kicking off in Idlib last week until the talks between President Putin and President Erdogan of Turkey took place in Moscow. A new arrangement was reached. Will it hold? Will it solve the problem of the bastion, the last bastion of the head-chopping, throat-cutting Islamist barbarians who are holed up in Idlib under Western as well as Turkish uh, protection? Uh, we'll be asking Marwa Osman, an expert on the area, on the region, uh, about that later in the show. I think I told you we'll have Dr. Ranjit Bra. And guess what? We're about to do a spin-off show called Moats Medic. And 
Dr. Ranjit, who's the 21st century answer to Dr. Kildare. Didn't he look handsome in his scrubs? We hope that he'll do a regular Moats Medic show uh, for us that will spin off of the main Moats vehicle. Thinking of doing one on football too, Moats Football, hosted by yours truly. And my old pal, Ron Mackay. Nobody knows more about football than he and I put together, partly because we're about 120 years old between us. And we'll be talking as well as about the American elections, as well as coronavirus, as well as the situation in Syria, about the deadly outcome of the third Israeli general election this year. Despite the hype, Netanyahu lost. He still does not have a majority. He is still indicted. He is still facing prison time, but he's still trying to be the prime minister of Israel. What could possibly go wrong? Of course, the fact that the election was fought between two men, Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, who are the closest thing to Tweedledee and Tweedledum that I've ever seen running against each other in a political election uh, is, of course, a part of the problem. But we'll be talking to the greatest living Israeli, to the doyen of Israeli writers and journalists, Gideon Levy of Haaretz, is the man, the bravest man in Israel, the clearest man in Israel, and there's nothing he doesn't know about Israeli politics. But there are other aspects to the show this week. I'm going to start a, a paper uh, review, what the papers say. That's a new uh, item that will appear on the show. Later in the show, I'm going to launch the Moats Book Club. I'm going to announce and talk briefly about a book, and four weeks from now, we are all going to discuss it. And I hope that you will get the book one way or another. You'll borrow it from the library, or you'll read it online, or you'll get yourselves a copy so we can have an informed discussion about it. That'll be coming up in the final hour. And just to give you a heads up, the book I've chosen to kick off the Moats Book Club is The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, a book that made a very great impact indeed on me. The uh, big field that started out the democratic uh, primary process is now down to two. Well, it's actually down to three, but they're determined to keep the third wheel off the track. And that is Tulsi Gabbard, who qualified to be in the next debate in Arizona. But despite being a woman, despite this being International Women's Day, despite the fact she's a woman of color, where color and race is a big issue in the contest. They've decided to change the rules again. Remember, they changed them to let Michael Bloomberg on. Now they've changed them to keep Tulsi Gabbard off. It was supposed to be toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but Joe Biden, for understandable reasons, doesn't want to stand through, through a debate with Bernie Sanders. He's insisting on sitting down. He wants it to be more sedate as befitting the seniority of both men. Will it work? What is going to happen in the Democratic primary and what will happen if it's Joe Biden up against the ferocious, tigerish Donald Trump? Who better to ask than my wonderful colleague at RT America? I'm on that show uh, in question on RT America every single night, uh, Monday to Friday at 5 p.m. London time, and I often catch the reports which are splendid from my colleague 
Rachel Blevins, who joins me now. Rachel, always a pleasure to talk directly to you. We, we sometimes appear on screen more or less at the same time, but I'm never able to, as it were, reach out uh, to you. So I'm grateful for you coming back on the show. Tell us, please, first of all, what the state of play in the Democratic Party is now. Right, so we just survived our big Super Tuesday number of primaries no. here in the United States, which is known because it has a number of delegates at play. And the media will tell you that Joe Biden came out as the big winner of that, not only because he was the one who received the largest number of delegates, but also because we saw other candidates dropping like flies right around Super Tuesday and giving their support to Joe Biden, whether it was Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, or Pete Buttigieg, all of them, all of these candidates who got into the race because they probably looked at the Democratic Party. They knew that Joe Biden was the establishment favorite going into it. But at the same time, they knew that the odds are not in his favor if he goes up against Donald Trump. So they decided to throw their hat in the ring. And now all of a sudden they're dropping out and they're throwing their support behind Biden specifically over Bernie Sanders. Now, Elizabeth Warren did drop out. She didn't give an endorsement, which by her not endorsing Sanders, that also gives it right to Joe Biden. And that seems to be the state of things right now. But at the same time, the big question ultimately comes down to the debates as we see them coming, especially if Joe Biden goes up against Donald Trump. Is that something he's going to be able to handle even before any of those primary votes are cast? Well, I, unfortunately, I didn't hear any of that, Rachel, but the audience did, which is more important. But uh, uh, it makes me need to apologize to you if I ask you something now that you've just dealt with. Uh, the Tulsi Gabbard uh, angle. Tulsi Gabbard is the only one of the remaining candidates with an absolutely distinctive foreign policy. Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is better than Joe Biden's, but Tulsi Gabbard's is better than both of them put together. Would that be the real reason why they didn't want to have her on the platform in the debates because they don't want the, the bipartisan, uh, effective bipartisan U.S. foreign policy to be shredded by Tulsi Gabbard. Absolutely. I think that's the reason, and especially when you look at Tulsi Gabbard, you would think that she would almost be the shining star of the Democratic Party. She's a woman. She's multiracial. She served this country as a veteran. And so she has all of these things going for her. But at the same time, her foreign policy is what really gets her in trouble because she is the one candidate who has said that she will take on the military industrial complex and has said that she will fight to end the endless wars, literally, as that's something that Donald Trump has said, but Gabbard is one of those people who you know that she would fight it tooth and nail because she has served in those wars and she knows what it's like to be on the ground. And so you would think that she would be someone that the Democratic Party would be proud of, but instead she's someone that they have constantly shut out and they have constantly said, oh, we want a woman president, we want a minority president, but not you, Tulsi Gabbard. And they especially don't seem to want her on the debate stage this time around because it's down to 
just Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And they know that because there are enough similarities between Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders, if they go up against Joe Biden, they are going to tear him apart for his support for the Iraq war and for everything that he did when he was in office as vice president under Barack Obama. And for all of those places where the Obama administration promised that they would end the Afghanistan war, that they would end the Iraq war. And then they went into Syria and started a whole new number of problems there, which the United States is still dealing with today. And so the DNC is looking at this and they absolutely know that if they let Tulsi Gabbard up on that debate stage with Bernie Sanders and with Joe Biden, then Joe Biden is not going to fare well at all. And I think that's what it all comes down to when they are suddenly changing the debate rules once again after they already changed them to allow Michael Bloomberg in in the first place. Exactly. Um, the, perhaps it was the fact he was ready to spend half a billion dollars that uh, persuaded them. Uh, now, again, you may have answered this in your first answer. Forgive me if you did. But what now of Elizabeth Warren? She ran as a progressive candidate, though I never found her all that persuasive in that, guys. I liked her better when she was a Republican in the 1990s. Uh, who is she going to endorse? Or is she sitting out in the hope of being offered something like, say, the vice presidency uh, nomination before she pitches one way or the other? Well, I think you've got it right there that she may be waiting for the offers to come to her before she gives those endorsements. And a lot of people have said that they really wanted Elizabeth Warren to endorse Bernie Sanders because if she's labeling herself as a progressive candidate, then who better to go for than the more progressive candidate Where when you're looking at Sanders versus Biden. But she hasn't given an endorsement yet. And by not doing that, she's almost giving more credit to Joe Biden by taking a step back and saying that she She's not going to endorse Bernie Sanders because the DNC knows that if she did that, then all of those voters who looked at her and who said, well, she's a woman, she could be the first woman president, then their support could likely go to Bernie Sanders and that would be bad for the DNC. And so it's unclear yet exactly what she's going to do. But at the same time, I do think if she gets an offer from one of those candidates saying that she could be their vice president, then that may help her make that decision. Now, uh, let me turn to President Trump. Uh, it's plain sailing for him internally vis-a-vis -vis the Democrats at this moment. But he does have a couple of sharks in the water, doesn't he? One of them is the impact on the stock market uh, of the coronavirus, which has seen share prices tumbling. And the other is the total failure of the United States to prepare properly for the arrival of this virus, even in the many weeks uh, since it broke in January, uh, the United States looks hopelessly incapable of dealing with it. They're even keeping people locked up on cruise ships, not allowing them ashore even to go into quarantine just to keep their numbers down. But it's not working. The numbers are spreading. The U.S. Health Service is uh, a pitiful excuse for a health service. Donald Trump's smile might be wiped to the other side of his face by Corona. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at Donald Trump's Twitter feed, you see that he is just enjoying everything that's going on with the DNC right now because he knows that either Bernie Sanders is the nominee, which is what he doesn't want to happen, or Joe Biden is the nominee. And there will be a lot of accusations of the DNC doing exactly what they did in 2016, which is to change up the rules just enough so that their candidate is the one who ends up being the ultimate nominee. And so Trump is loving what's happening with that right now, but he's also using that to distract from exactly what's happening here in the United States right now, which is that we are a country, as a country, are not prepared for the coronavirus. We're not prepared for a major outbreak. And you saw Trump, he comes in and he says, oh, well, Vice President Mike Pence is going to be in charge of these efforts, which essentially means that Pence is going to give some really great speeches talking about how the United States is prepared. But at the end of the day, the country as a whole is not prepared for a virus like this to spread. And as you saw, China has constantly come up with new ways to deal with it, new ways to combat it based on the virus and based on how it's spreading. And that's something we're just not seeing here in the United States. And there is a lot of concern from average everyday Americans because what we see in the media is we see all of these new cases. Here specifically in Washington, D.C., where I live, I've seen there's a number of new cases around the area. There's a new case in D.C. And all of a sudden they're saying that there was someone with the coronavirus who attended the CPAC convention last week. And there's a number of reports of people saying, uh-oh, they have this virus, but there's not nearly as many reports saying this is what's happening, this is how to combat it, and this is what everyday Americans should do. Instead, we're just getting some really great speeches from the top down instead of being able to be secure in the fact that this is a government that can handle this if it comes to the point where it's spreading all across the country. Uh, Donald Trump may well have, in fact, did shake the hands of the man at the CPAC uh, conference, the Conservative Action Committee. Uh, the person who's gone down with coronavirus from that conference uh, actually shook Donald Trump's hands. It's not impossible uh, that Donald Trump himself will get it. What is clear enough is that with the vagaries of the U.S. healthcare system, which ironically is Sanders' strongest electoral talking point, uh, if the virus spreads uh, in, a, in a serious way in the United States, uh, you may well end up as the country suffering most uh, from this virus and the impact already uh, on the economy is clear. Certainly the impact on the, uh, on, on the stock market, on the share prices. But Mike Pence in charge of it, it doesn't inspire much confidence, does it? Absolutely not. And I think that that's going to be a really big player going into the 2020 election, especially, as you said, when you have a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who has wanted to shake up the health care system. He's wanted to make changes that will impact everyday Americans. We're not seeing those same promises and guarantees from Joe Biden moving forward. And especially when we're in a case where if you get on Twitter, you see all of these new reports of coronavirus. You also see all of these crazy, ridiculous videos of Joe Biden and his nonsense day in and day out. And that is what voters are getting from him. And so even in the cases where they're looking at Donald Trump and they're saying, OK, he doesn't seem to have a real plan for this. They're looking at Joe Biden and they're saying, well, he can't even get through a regular speech. And then they're looking at Bernie Sanders and they're seeing someone who has had a comprehensive health care plan that he's had for decades that he's 
been trying to implement, that could be a case where it sways a lot of voters, especially as they're looking at something that not only impacts the stock markets here in the U.S., but that also impacts all of our health moving forward. Well, uh, it could be a, a most peculiar form of karma uh, that the people who defended the status quo uh, of the American healthcare system are uh, going to be up against a man, maybe, uh, who has an alternative just at the very moment when a pandemic is sweeping through the United States, showing up all the holes in the U.S. healthcare system. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to put it. And no matter if, you know, there are a number of Americans who may support single payer health care. There are a number of Americans who wish that there was more, that there were just different changes made to it than what is happening right now and all of the pitfalls that we've seen with it. But I think that really could come to the head, especially as we see this virus that doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. And that is spreading across the country here in the U.S. Let me ask then finally, Rachel, and I'm grateful for your time. It's a sensitive matter. Uh, nobody likes, you know, making fun of, of the demented. Uh, many people have known elderly relatives that have dementia. Uh, but if, as I suspect, between now and November, more and more examples uh, of the, let's call them cognitive difficulties to be kindest uh, of uh, Biden uh, begin to be more and more manifest. Can the Democrats really go into the election with Joe Biden? Mightn't they have to perform some kind of emergency procedure uh, and simply impose someone else? Well, especially whenever you see all of the issues that Joe Biden is having just right now, where he's just giving campaign speeches, he's not even really, really getting into the meat of the debates, especially against someone like Donald Trump. It does make you wonder, is he all that the DNC has to offer? I mean, when Joe Biden was vice president and Barack Obama was the president, he was known as crazy Uncle Joe. People knew him for saying ridiculous things. They knew him for being not all there in the head to a certain extent as far as his politics policies went, and that wasn't even with serious health issues. So now that we're looking at all of these speeches that he's giving, all of these areas where he's mixing people up, where he's mixing up phrases, where he is clearly struggling, it does raise a lot of questions about, is this really the best that the DNC has to offer in terms of their chosen establishment candidate? And it creates a lot of concerns for voters. Is he someone that they're going to be able to put their stock in? And so I don't know what that looks like for them if he is the chosen nominee and then simply isn't able to carry it out. But it does raise a lot of concerns, especially when you look at the Democratic Party that is supposed to be the party of minorities. It's supposed to be the party of the lower class of people here in this country who are struggling. They constantly count themselves as being the party as those, whereas the Republican Party is supposed to be the party of the rich white man. That's simply not what we're seeing here, especially when you're looking at someone who is supposed to be representing all of those Democrats, and yet not only is he struggling so much himself, but he also can't relate to all of them. So it's going to be really interesting to see if the DNC is going to hold on to Biden. And it looks like they are so much so that it could not only cost them the 2020 election, but it could do so in an incredibly embarrassing way. Rachel Blevins, thanks for helping us through that. Sorry about the technical difficulty in the beginning. Rachel Blevins, my colleague from RT America, talking about the travails of the Democratic Party and of America. Now, I'm joined 
on the line by the master, Gideon Levy of Haaretz. Gideon, welcome back onto the show. Thank you so much, George. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, the nine lives of Benjamin Netanyahu, have they finally run out? Uh, he's short of a majority. Has he given up trying? Or might he still pull something out of the hat? No, he didn't give up, but his chances uh, seem quite poor right now. And uh, the feeling is that uh, those are his last days in office, but you never know. No, not with him, definitely. And am I right in saying, if he doesn't pull it off, he's off to jail? It's hard to tell. I mean, he will end up in jail, but it might take more time. Okay, so if not he, who? Uh, what, do you, you're not really going to have four elections in one year, are you? Don't count on this. Don't count on this. But there is a fair chance that his rival, Benny Gantz, will be able to create a government. In that case, you better educate us more uh, about him. His party is the Blue and White Party, is a former military chief with a, a rather uh, controversial record in that regard. Uh, should we be partying at the prospect of Benny Gantz instead of Netanyahu? Unfortunately not, George. Not me and not you. We can't celebrate this because when it comes to the issues that both of us really care about, like the continuance of the Israeli occupation, the apartheid, lack of equality, lack of justice, I don't see much difference between the two. There are differences between the two, but not in the main issues that both of us care so much. Even, even when we go to character, would it not be fair to say that Gantz is a less rum character than Netanyahu? And if so, I mean, there is more blood on Gantz's hands than on Netanyahu's hands. By the end of the day, he's a general who, uh, who uh, commanded one of the more brutal operations of Israel in Gaza. And uh, we can't celebrate, we can't be happy about his election. I mean, he is much more uh, clean of corruption, of, of personal corruption. He is more of an honest man, no doubt. He will put the Israeli system in a much more calm way because uh, the noises from Netanyahu, everyone is really sick and tired of. But by the end of the day, when if you'll ask me, will he do anything to put an end to the, to the occupation? My answer is definitely not. Does he have any intention to put an end to the occupation? By all means, not. What about so, the, what uh, about the uh, Kushner uh, deal of the century. Is there any hope at least that sanity will prevail and that will be, even if it's just the status quo ante, at least not as bad as implementing or seeking to uh, the Kushner peace plan? I'm so sorry to be so uh, pessimistic tonight, but uh, this is not a peace plan. This is an annexation plan. Uh, you don't make peace with yourself. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You need to have a partner. The Americans totally ignored uh, the Palestinians, even didn't bother to ask their views. And by the end of the day, this plan has only one real intention, and this is to put off the table the two-state solution, to put off the table all the, the, the ambitions of the Palestinians for more justice or liberty or self-determination. Now, uh, how did the Arab uh, voters this time uh, vote? There was, uh, the last time we talked, uh, there was the possibility uh, that the Arab uh, electorate would go for Gantz and that could tip the balance. Did that happen? It's under process. First of all, they did very well in the elections and they got an unprecedented uh, result, 15 seats, you know, 15 seats out of 120. Mm. They are the third biggest party in the parliament, which is very remarkable and very impressive. The problem is that they are excluded by both sides, but uh, less by guns. But still, even he is not ready to see them as an equal partner. And therefore, it is still a long way to go. But it seems that they are going to support guns because they have something in common. And this is this ambition to get rid of Netanyahu. Yeah. <laughs> now, finally, and I'm grateful for your time always, Gideon. The, uh, the far right, I know it's, all these terms are <laughs> relative everywhere, but especially relative in Israeli politics at the moment. Those to the right of Netanyahu, uh, the ultra nationalists that we spoke of last time. How did they fare? I mean, quite fortunately, they did very badly because Netanyahu succeeded to convince uh, this uh, public uh, to vote for him rather than for the smaller right-wing parties. And so they did. So they were quite marginalized. And these, those are maybe the only good news from those elections. And uh, when will we know who the next prime minister will be? I believe that in the coming days or in a very few weeks, and still I must uh, repeat that you shouldn't exclude the possibility of false elections, even though it looks not very probable right now, but it is still on the table and it still might happen. But the, was the turnout this time less than the time before? Are people getting voter fatigue? No, this was very interesting. On the contrary, the turnout was higher than last time because people want really a decision. 
people saw that going to the ballots will bring a decision. But this decision didn't come because none of the, of the sides has a real clear majority. Gideon Levy, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mother thank, of thank All. Thank you, George, Russia. for having me. Appreciate Always a pleasure. It, uh, very much, uh, my dear friend. Uh, okay, when what will you be panic buying? Toilet paper, hand gel or nothing at all? That's the poll that we have got running. It's all no change so far. Nearly 1,500 of you have voted. Toilet paper, hand gel or nothing at all? Restore my faith, will you, in the uh, British uh, people? Now, welcome back to our old friend Marwa Osman, academic, journalist, television personality, commentator extraordinaire on what has been, by any standards, a remarkable week, Marwa, for Syria. Uh, where now stands Idlib, the Syrian effort to reclaim the last inch of their country after the talks in Moscow? Uh, between President Putin and President Erdogan. Well, let me begin by saying uh, the talks in, uh, between Ankara and Moscow were very much disappointing uh, for uh, Turkey, for Ankara, for uh, a number of reasons. But to begin with, what this uh, agreement was actually uh, resulting with three main points, which is uh, one, to stop See, to, to, to have a ceasefire in Idlib to stop any uh, sort of military action in, uh, in Idlib or around Idlib that involves the Turkish army. Uh, two, to start patrolling the M4 uh, highway. Uh, the M4 highway was, by the way, very close of being liberated by the Syrian Arab Army and the uh, National Defense Forces and the allies of the Syrian Arab Army before uh, the agreement uh, was made between Ankara and Moscow. And three is to uh, keep uh, the posts, quote unquote, because this is an occupation post. Now it's no longer a monitoring post inside of Idlib uh, to keep the Turkish uh, occupation posts uh, where they are right now without even saying what will happen to the posts that are now uh, being circulated. They are being encircled by the presence of the Syrian Arab army because this is where the war stopped and the agreement uh, uh, took uh, place or started. Uh, so these three points were the results of the agreement, but a lot of issues were not discussed, which are very vital, which saw the escalation and the tensions uh, happen in uh, Idlib, specifically in uh, southeastern Idlib, uh, after the full liberation of Aleppo, these couple of weeks, or actually they were they're more like 12 days that were very, very sensitive in Syria because of the direct contact between the Syrian Arab army and the Turkish occupation forces for the first time. Now, let me be clear by why I'm saying occupation, because it's Syrian land, so under international law, this is Syrian land, Syrian sovereignty being occupied by a nation or by a, uh, by a foreign uh, troops and by foreign soldiers that were not invited by the Syrian uh, government in any way or form. And they are aiding terrorist organizations, deemed terrorists, not only by the Syrian government and its allies, but also by the West that is supposedly against the Syrian government. This is why I'm using this term. Now, when we talk about uh, uh, why uh, this was a disappointing agreement, I'd like to point out the very important points that were not, uh, maybe they were spoken of during the agreement, but we didn't see any of them mentioned, being mentioned in the results, was one, 
what's with the patrolling of the M4, six kilometers to the north, six kilometers to the south, patrolling it for whom? The M4 is particularly right now in the hands of the terrorist organizations. So are we patrolling to safeguard these terrorists or are we actually patrolling to take them out? No one said what's going to happen there. Two, no one said a thing again about the posts of the Turk, the Turkish military posts inside of Idlib that are now being encircled by the Syrian Arab army. Are they going to remain as is? Are they going to pull out with Russian uh, 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 patrolling uh, troops to take them out of these areas or not? Nothing was said about the gains made by the Syrian Arab army and Russia in particular. After uh, the agreement, actually, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, called President Assad and congratulated him over the military advancements that were uh, made by the Syrian Arab army, which indicates that Russia will not ask of the Syrian Arab army to move its forces from the area that they liberated. Uh, three, and the most importantly, no one said a word about the terrorist organizations, whether within the M4 patrolling area or within Idlib itself because Maria Zakharova, the spokesperson of the Russian Foreign Ministry, said specifically said that this ceasefire is a very important time for us to now go on and continue fighting terrorism. And then she said that Syria has every right to eliminate terrorism from its soil. So what's happening there? We have no real explanation. And then nothing was even said about uh, what what's going to happen with the uh, Turkish uh, bordering European countries issue, because Turkey obviously opened its border for illegal uh, um, immigrants. Some say that they are uh, actual refugees. They opened the gates to, to go to Greece and other uh, areas like maybe Bulgaria. Uh, we don't know yet if they are making it there or not. But the issue is no one mentioned this in the agreement. Maybe it's not up to Russia or Russia really doesn't want to get involved with this turmoil. They're leaving Erdogan by himself to react to this new turmoil. And again, we hear Recep Tayyip Erdogan saying that we're not going to leave Idlib because if we leave Idlib now, it means we have to leave Iskenderun or Hatay, the Turkish occupied, uh, the Assyrian re uh, region of Iskenderun, they call it Hatay, that's before uh, the um, that's during the World War One. So uh, now he's saying that we're not going to leave Idlib because if we do, it means we're going to have to leave uh, uh, Iskenderun as well, which per se, by default, he's saying that we are also occupying Iskenderun. So at, we are at the weakest point for uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan at the moment. And Turkey is not very happy with what their president is bringing about, which is their soldiers in coffins in a war that they did not sign on in. Why do you think he did that? Uh, you know, not that long ago, uh, President Erdogan was very successful. The economy in Turkey was very good. Uh, the Kurdish question inside their country uh, was on track, had a peace process and so on. Uh, they had no quarrels with their neighbors. Why do you think President Erdogan has done this? And as you describe it, uh, has uh, committed this enormous series of blunders. Well, I believe that he made some sort of a miscalculation to what the things in the region are going uh, towards, especially after the so-called Arab Spring, which is nothing <laughs> close to a spring. But after the 2011 revolutions that were happening all around the Arab world, I think uh, Erdogan at that point, by the way, just two weeks before the beginning of the global war on Syria, there was a meeting between President Assad and uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. They were having 
breakfast together and they were pretty much buddies, not even friends. Just two weeks later, we start hearing certain um, statements coming out of uh, Turkish institutions and later on bluntly and openly by the Turkish president saying that Assad must go, Syria is being ruled by a dictator, etc., etc., the same scenario that has been re being repeated for the past nine years. But he had a lot of chances to back down. Erdogan, as you said, began as a very successful leader. He took Turkey into a very different, successfully, uh, meaning different area for where it, it was being before he became prime minister and then later on president, he had several uh, uh, opportunities during the war on Syria to correct the mistakes because things were being uh, uh, elaborated uh, even more and explained more whether to the public or to the entire world, especially from 2014 on, that this was not a civil war, as the mainstream media was reporting. It was a Takfiri terrorist organization groups funded by regional uh, Gulf monarchies and at some point by uh, Turkey itself when they wanted to get a piece of the pie and by Qatar as well, because we saw uh, Chechnyans, we saw Afghanis, Pakistanis, Indians, uh, Uyghurs from China. We saw people from all over the world, from the West, uh, from the US, the UK, all over, over Europe, from Australia coming over to liberate Syria from the Syrians themselves. So starting 2014, and especially during 2017, when the real liberation started happening by the Syrian Arab army, along with the help of Russia and their allies from Hezbollah and the Iranians and the Fatimi Yun from uh, Afghanistan as well, when that started happening, Erdogan should have taken that as a hint and maybe started to develop certain ties because Russia was there involved and trying to bring the Syrian and the Turkish sides together. But he resisted. And I think that has to do with something that is now very well known in the Turkish media and in the Arab media, known by the Assad dilemma inside Erdogan's head. This Assad dilemma has taken over the real, uh, if you will, strategic thinking of President Erdogan, where he sees nothing except the fall of President Assad, which is not the case because the man was elected by his own people. So why would you want to get involved in that and add to that that the entire Syrian uh, ground is being liberated. It started with Palmyra, it moved to uh, Deir Zor, Dara, then Homs and Hama, and now finally Aleppo. People are going back to their normal lives, students going back to universities, hospitals operating normally. People are not being killed and murdered by terrorist bombardments of uh, shelling, uh, artillery shelling, especially coming from uh, Idlib. It, that also stopped with the liberation of uh, northern Aleppo and Aleppo countryside, which is on the border of Idlib. So all of these were opportunities for Erdogan to just, he doesn't have to change course, but just stop and think a bit about the future of these two states, which share a long border from the coast to Iraq, that these people have a history together, that we need to sit down, call me, talk about this, especially that President Putin has been trying to get Erdogan down that tree that he went up on his own, but it was not working. So what I think now is that after what happened and the very dangerous escalation that happened during the past couple of weeks, or the past 12 days to be specific, Erdogan felt that he played all his cards. He tried a war with Syria. While he was trying the invasion, he asked for the NATO's help. NATO refused because they said that Turkey was not under danger. Turkey was actually invading another country. He asked for Patriot missiles from the U.S. The U.S. says, well, you have the S-400. Why are you asking for the Patriot missiles? No one agreed to help him. And then eventually he went up to Russia and now he's pleading for help from Russia.
Well, that's very helpful indeed, Marwa, as always. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, joining us is the, I can only describe him, he's an old friend of mine, he won't mind me saying so, the internet sensation. Dr. Ranjit Brar's common sense on coronavirus has swept the world. It certainly gained over 200,000, climbing towards a quarter of a million uh, uh, of an audience. Uh, and it was only, I think, uh, a short seven, eight minute interview. Uh, but because this uh, epidemic, pandemic, panic continues, we're going to keep going back to uh, Dr. Ranjit for an update on how it's all looking. Uh, indeed, we're creating a spin-off called Moats Medic, and Dr. Ranjit is the Dr. Kildare de Nojour of the 21st century. Not many people, Ranjit, remember Dr. Kildare, but alas, I do. Welcome back. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. George, thanks so much for having us back on. Now, tell me, uh, since we last spoke last week, a lot more people have got this virus and a lot more people have died. Uh, were we right in the balance we struck last week? Do we need to adjust to any? Because, of course, when facts change, so must our opinions. That's right, George. I think that's a, a, a reasonable point. Um, overall, I think the balance really hasn't changed dramatically. What has changed is where the highest risk areas are. Um, initially, we thought of this as an outbreak centering around Wuhan, and 95% of the cases were there. Um, I read a very interesting report by the European CDC, so an EU institution similar to the CDC, Center for Disease Control in the United States. Um, they actually sent a delegation over to China um, and seen how they coped with the outbreak. And I've got to say it was a, it was a, a glowing report, a report really at odds with much of the tone of the media coverage. And, and really, we're reaching the end of the bell curve in China. You know, initially, there's a propagation phase with these uh, infections, where it seems that more and more people are getting it, seems to be spreading at an exponential rate. And that seemed to be, and that was spreading the initial panic. Certainly, the United States, and not the only country, has stopped travel with China, and really using the situation to try and advance its program of sanctions with China. The ECDC struck a much more sober tone, apart from, you know, the obvious things that we've already commented on. Like, amazing, really, to see, one, the virus identified in sequence so soon, that sequence shared with the world, the simple 10 base pairs being the basis for ongoing research into um, a vaccine, uh, more of that later, but also their drug trials and showing uh, um, that with adequate hospital care, categorizing the risk of the patients into low risk who could self-isolate at home, slightly more seriously ill patients, and they created mass wards where they could be infected and cared for by teams who were themselves increasingly well protected from the infective agent. And then lastly, recognizing a small cohort. So really, 5% of the patients who got a much more serious illness. And it's these ones who are getting the lower respiratory tract infection, uh, the whiteout of the lungs that you classically see with this ground glass opacification on CT and, and plain radiograph film. And it's those ones who have these SARS, the, se the severe uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome type picture. What's interesting to see is that actually, if anything, it's become probably less dangerous than we had initially thought. Uh, so if you look at the World Health Organization, they're still using overall 
uh, a figure of around 3% mortality, which is very high and considerably higher than flu, which would be around 0.1, 0.2%. But if you look at the, lo the latest of so the last cases in China, when it was well recognized and being treated aggressively, including with antiviral uh, anti medication, which we'll come to a bit later on, um, that, that mortality has fallen considerably, and probably 0.6 or 0.7 is a closer figure. So, I mean, that's the positive thing. The other, the other very simple step that China took was very rigorous contra, uh, contact tracing. So they're able to mobilize their health system, mobilize their resources to make sure that every positive result was rigorously traced. Everyone they met with and every single one of those people was isolated pending uh, the results of whether or not they had in fact contracted the virus. And it was those measures in particular, you know, effective quarantining, closing down, um, ex, you know, unusual, um, well, interstate transportation, um, closing down, obviously, the epicenter of the virus, but rigorous contact tracing and concentration in specifically designed and rapidly fashioned hospitals that had amazing effect in China. That's not been mirrored, unfortunately, in other countries. Well, definitely not. Uh, but before I leave that point, uh, someone wrote in, it was a bit of a... Uh, it was a bit of a non sequitur, really, because I had been praising the construction of, rapidly construction of the hospitals, the 10-day, 12-day hospitals. Uh, they pointed out that in Guangzhou, uh, uh, an isolation uh, hotel had fallen down. Had that been rapidly built or was that a longer standing structure? Do you know about that? I'm afraid I can't comment on that, George. I don't have information about that, and that's not come to my attention. But if I find, I'll, I'll look into it, and if um, I see you again, I'll see what I can dig up on so it. I'm, I'm being told in my ear it was an old one, and therefore has nothing to do with the rapid construction of the hospitals. That's all worked well, I infer from what you say. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, how are we doing on a vaccine? Who will make this vaccine? Will China get there first? Or will the American uh, uh, big pharma uh, get there and, and uh, make a hell of a profit out of giving it to each of us? That's an interesting point, George. So um, along with the gene sequencing, the genes themselves code for proteins. Um, there's only 10 genes, 10 distinct proteins. Uh, so it's really quite a simple organism in some respects. As we said before, virus is not a complete life form. One of those proteins is the so-called spike protein. I'm sure everyone's now seen pictures of the protein. Uh, coronaviruses are relatively large, spherical, polyhedra, really, because they've got a repeating um, protein which makes up their coat, and then they have a lipid layer. And they have a transmembrane domain, and sticking out from that is a large spike protein. I'm sure you've seen, hence the name, really, corona looking like the sun. And not, incidentally, corona uh, like the beer. Uh, interestingly, in the United States, uh, the, the corona beer is absolutely tanked in terms of its sale because of confusion about uh, that point in that it's terminology. An which it's says, an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Here we go on. <laughs> it says rather more about public perception than the, than the virus itself. But that protein is very likely to be the target um, as, a, as a specific antigen which would be available for a vaccine. Has to be careful with vaccine development. That um, you have, um, you need an antigen, so part of that protein, which is not found within the human organism. So that when you opsonize, when you target that particular point on the virus, 
that that doesn't cause immune reaction also towards the host organism in the body. And therefore, you know, there, there are a, a series of ascending trials, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, in order to get up to a, vi a, 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 um, a vaccine which is commercially viable, which is actually safe for the general public. I think you know, organizations within China, the, the medical um, uh, establishment in China, the medical organizations in China are working on that. It's quite clear that Sanofi, um, Pfizer, various, so there are five major um, health firms in the United States who between them essentially have a, a monopoly on, on uh, vaccine production. It's very clear that they are extremely keen on working on that. Um, in a sense, that's not a, a new, I think Boris also visited um, a British laboratory where he was um, saying the government would give some money towards that development. There's no way on earth that's going to be ready immediately, probably not for a year or a year and a half with a, a reasonable estimate. And that's a very accelerated estimate in itself. That would be unusually quick. So it's not going to be a vaccine which saves us from this outbreak. It is really the more simple measures of existing antiviral medication and carefully self-isolating, contact tracing, and trying to stop the spread in that manner. You know, in fact, if you look at the job China's done, they've managed to limit, you know, they're about 1.4 billion population, they've managed to limit the virus, and now it really is in its declining phase, uh, to less than half of one hundredth of one percent of the population. And that's in a really stark contrast to the um, prediction that was given by Matt Hancock, our own health secretary, who almost blurted out, it seemed, in, in the interview, that, that we'd probably end up with an 80% of the British public being affected. And it's a quite a reach from the current situation, where still there are less than 200 people who have the virus. And it should be possible to contain the virus and stop a generalised spread. Let me ask you a, 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 a trivial for a man of your standing. Um, in the football today, uh, the players were not allowed to shake hands with each other. Mm. Even though they were playing in a stadium with 80,000 people breathing viruses and other germs uh, at them. Do you think this kind of thing is such an overreaction uh, that we should see less of it? Uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings. I mean, there's nothing wrong with telling people to be careful that there's a high risk situation. You know, no one, if you really want a video to go viral, George, I'm very pleased with the response that, that I had from my colleagues, friends, family who've seen this video. But if you really want something to go viral, it seems that you really have to do is take a video of you carefully washing your hands in the appropriate manner. It seems that we all know how to wash our hands, um, whether we sing the national anthem or happy birthday while we're doing it. Uh, but, but, you know, we can all judge that washing our hands is a safe thing to do. And yet there is research that shows, you know, we have a, a lax attitude towards basic hygiene, essentially because our everyday life experience shows us that risk is relatively low with the levels of hygiene we tend to use. So, you know, President Trump coming out and saying that he hasn't been touching his face for several uh, weeks now, uh, and us encouraging us not to touch our mucous membranes, I think it's reasonable, you know, that the, the virus will get into the human body through mucous membranes, through coughs and sneezes. So coughs and sneezes cause diseases, you know, sneezing into a tissue, sneezing into your arm, throwing that away, w washing very rigorously. I think all of those are perfectly reasonable things to do. But there, there comes a point when, you know, you do start to panic monger. I, you know, I said last time when I was with you that the tube and other large crowd, crowded areas probably would be high risk areas 
if we come to the stages of a pandemic. And I must say, there's a palpably different atmosphere uh, when you travel through London with people quite clearly slightly nervous of you know, interpersonal contact. And that is really an effect of the media hype surrounding this infection, which is like no other media hype that I've ever seen regarding any other infection, which is not to underplay the seriousness you know, of the situation. Well, uh, finally, uh, President Trump may not be touching his face as much as before, but he did shake the hand of someone at a right-wing conservative conference uh, just the other day who is now a confirmed sufferer of coronavirus. The impact on the United States, I'm making a guess here, you're the expert. I actually think this could be pretty devastating for the United States. It's already set the stock market tumbling, may actually end up costing President Trump a second term. What do you think? Um, I think, if, you know, great play has been made. I mean, I saw Alex Azar, who was the US Health Secretary, being uh, cross-examined, if you like, by a congressional committee. Uh, and Marco Rubio was one of those notoriously right-wing senators who stood against Trump in the first round, who was cross-examining him, and was constantly making the point that, you know, 80% of our medicines and the precursors to make our medicines come from China, and trying to use the situation of an outbreak of a health problem in China to change that, to enforce their pre-existing program of furthering sanctions, furthering the trade war. And certainly that's been the case with Iran. You know, the, the, the foreign secretary of Iran has come out and said, at this time, when we need help, when we need aid, the United States is ramping up the sanctions. And those are certainly despicable things. But actually, if you look at the way China's dealt with it, the, the way that was commended by, as I say, the European CDC, and not an institution you could um, accuse of harboring any great you know, sympathy for socialism, communism, or China, whichever of those you think it is. Um, you know, their report and their glowing report of how China coped with it will not be reflected in the United States. The United States may well be, you know, in the worst position to deal with such an outbreak. As you know, there are 40, 50, 60 million cases of flu every year. But as you were saying, I think quite reasonably in our last interview, if you're a United States worker who's lucky enough to have a job, you know, if you're self-employed, there's very little social safety net. We know there are 50 million people in the United States who have no insurance and therefore very little access to health care. But beyond that, actually, the insured themselves, you know, Bob Gill's excellent uh, movie, um, which I really think everyone should watch, which is called The Great NHS Heist, points out that this is the direction in which currently and unchecked our own health system is moving. It's moving towards an insurance-based uh, system. And we touched on that again last time. But if you're in that situation, not only are you, do you end up with a, a large percentage of the population who have no health cover, the ones who do have health cover have uh, what they call deductibles. So they have to meet a certain, like when you crash your car, you have to pay out 500 or 1,000 pounds before the insurance company pay out. The same thing for your health. And that forms an enormous barrier. So there are people who have turned up, you know, for testing um, for, for COVID-19 and found that they met with a bill, even though they're negative, of three, $4,000, which is prohibitive. Um, if you see then people in our own country who come into some, something like a similar situation, you know, they're on zero hours contracts or self-employed. They can't actually afford to be unwell and self-isolate. They can't afford not to present to the DSS. So that actually, you know, this decision, which should be a straightforward medical decision, stay at home to prevent a wider 
health problem and a wider economic problem if you disable a larger portion of the working population, you know, there's a fundamental conflict with actually the, the economic modus operandi of our society. And increasingly, you know, I meet patients, they come to me, they're having elective operations, and they're very anxious about the period of time they'll have to spend off work. And they ask me, you know, very few people now have that level of social safety net where they feel they could happily take two weeks or a month off work. And there's a very good video, which I think uh, you know, is worth seeing. It's already had hundreds of thousands of hits. It's a diary um, of a frontline, quite heroic frontline worker in China in Wuhan area, a nurse who from the early days caught the virus because they didn't yet know exactly how to contain it, though their methods got better and better. And you can, it's a beautiful human story, but you can see that she, through self-isolation, was able to cure herself and get herself better just with, again, I think she had some antiviral medication. What's the name of that, doctor? The course of her illness was about 10 days, 12 days, two weeks, and then she probably needed another week off. But there are not, there are many, many workers, both within the United States and Britain, where that would mean a huge challenge to their finances, possibly even they're unable to repay their mortgage. And of course, that means further problems with homelessness, possibly. You know, so the crisis caused by what should be a simple medical matter goes well beyond just the extent of the severity of the illness, though clearly that is on people's mind at present. Crystal clear, as always. Thank you very much. Motes Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar. Thank you very much uh, for joining us again. Let's go to the lines. Uh, Rahul is in Bordeaux on this subject. Rahul. Oh, hello there, George. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you very much. And are you enjoying Bordeaux? Oh, I love it. Wonderful, wonderful weather. Excellent. Hot sunshine. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, um, I actually wanted to talk to you about the coronavirus um, in a light-hearted spirit. Of, of course, it's very, very serious, uh, the deaths and uh, all the suffering that it's brought. But I think there is one amusing byproduct. Tell me. Um, I was wondering if perhaps the coronavirus could be seen as the avenging spirit of freedom and civil liberties. Because uh, we live in Europe, and it's a continent which is supposed to value freedom. And uh, I think you will probably agree with me, George, that there seems to have been a lot of very unreasonable hostility expressed towards people who wear headscarves, people who want to cover themselves up, or men with unconventional beards. And there's been a lot of very unfair, blatantly linking of Islam with, with terrorism, which is very unreasonable. And then people like Boris Johnson and Julia Hartley Brewer, you know, making fun of women for wearing burqas. In France, where I live, um, local authorities have tried to ban people from covering up on beaches in France, you know, of, of all places where, you know, people surely should be encouraged to cover up. And I was thinking that perhaps, you know, the coronavirus is the avenging spirit of freedom because in Europe we have unreasonably tried to force people uh, who want to cover up, not to cover up. I see. Rahul, thanks uh, for that call. Just because of the hour, and I've got so many people on my wall, uh, you see the, uh, the niqab, the covering uh, of the lower half of the face that a very small percentage of Muslim women wear in uh, Western countries, is a kind of early uh, mask to keep out the coronavirus. Very interesting. Fraser in Calgary. Go ahead, Fraser. Hello, George. It's good to be back again. Nice to hear a Scottish voice from Calgary. I know it well. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. Um, so, 
just a quick perspective, and given the stuff that's going on with the primary at the moment, I've got a good few friends who live in Wisconsin, and they were Bernie supporters last time. Mm-hmm. And they held on those and voted for Hillary, rightly or wrongly. But they've said this time, if uh, you know Joe Biden gets the nomination, there's no way on earth they're putting a tick next to his name on the box at all. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, um, uh, no. If I were in America... It's Bernie Uh or bust. It's Bernie or a third-party candidate. Uh, I certainly would never, could never, encourage anyone to vote for Joe Biden on his record. Never mind on the fact that he may very well be Gaga. And President Gaga uh, is what we're trying to avoid uh, for another four years in the United States. Uh, And, of course, um, the point is Trump will annihilate him. He will literally crush him. Can you imagine a debate between Donald Trump, who, whatever else you say about Donald Trump, he's verbally fast on his feet on a platform with a big crowd. He can find the words that can hammer uh, his opponents. I mean, he'll have them chanting, uh, you know, lock him up in, uh, in whatever the uh, most famous uh, mental institution is. He'll be brutal, cruel. He will not uh, hold back at all, Fraser, from crushing Joe Biden on the grounds of his mental uh, limitations. Don't you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm just uh, happy to see that my friends who, you know, were basically bullied by the establishment last time into voting for Mm. a war criminal Mm. with a surname of Clinton. Mm. And they've just said, no, do you know what? They said, to hell with it. Uh, If it's Trump again, it's better than Uh, creepy, sleepy Joe. Especially (laughs) in Rust Belt industrial, post-industrial states uh, like Wisconsin. Who are you going to vote for? The guy who actually destroyed the industrial base of your state? Who de-industrialized you? Who ripped your blue collar off? Tore up your union card? Sent you, if you were lucky, into McDonald's to flip burgers instead of making steel and vehicles and all the things you used to do before Joe Biden... Uh, and Bill Clinton and all the Clintonite, Obamaite uh, circles transferred all your industries out of the country under NAFTA. You'd need to be mad, Fraser, uh, to agree to that. Till justice prevails, says, what do you call the shooting of children, paramedics, journalists in cold blood, water and crops poisoning, poisoning, organ harvesting, ethnic cleansing, the terrorism list by Israel is so long. And Constance Arens says Assad Syria is secular and multicultural. What is the alternative? ISIS or Al-Qaeda? The choice is simple, really, when you peel away all the propaganda. And Keel Jones said, says people should also read Upton Sinclair's King Cole. Uh, Constance, again, says when Erdogan saw the Muslim Brotherhood lose Egypt, perhaps he thought he could bring the Muslim Brotherhood to power in Syria, since it was next door to Turkey. Lily says, vaccine? No, I demand informed consent. I will not be forced to have their stuff put into my body. See the International Conference on Informed Consent. George, how clued are you up on vaccines? Not at all. Uh, In reply to the current poll, the current poll is on International Women's Day. Who is your woman of the year? A, Greta Thunberg. 46%. 46%. B, Megan Windsor, 22%. That's spelt wrongly, by the way. 
and see Me Too, the Me Too women, the people who exposed uh, 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 Epstein and, and Weinstein and uh, the other uh, people who have been beginning to tumble now and end up in jail or dead in the case of Epstein uh, because of their uh, beastly uh, behaviour towards women. Uh, so you can vote on that. I wouldn't vote for any of those three myself. We should have had a, a, an other box there. I don't know if you can. Anyway, A, Greta Thunberg, B, Megan Windsor, spelt with a D, which it now is, and C, the Me Too women. Uh, but in reply to this poll, Mr. Common Sense says, my wife, she's the strongest, hardest working, most loving, intelligent, gorgeous woman I've ever known. Your three choices pale into insignificance in comparison. And so say all of us, Mr. Common Sense. That would get my vote too. David says, I honestly can't vote for any of these options. Both Greta and Megan have done women grave disservice with their harping and lecturing. As for me too, well, sometimes I fear injustice masquerading as justice when judicial decisions are based upon mass hysteria. And Sleeping Policeman says, what next, Cousins Day, Auntie Day, Best Boss Day, pandering to so much stuff that's just not needed or necessary. That's from a churlish man. Now, before I go on to the book club sequence, let's hear from John in Berkshire on floods. John, have you been on before on this? Yes, George, it was on a few weeks ago. Scott that's right, Scholar. bring us up to date. Uh, Boris Johnson paid a visit to Worcestershire the day. He was heckled. He did visit one or two houses. He's promised to double the budget, uh, 2.5 to 5. Now, I don't know if that's million, billion. No, it's definitely it's million. It's definitely million, it's I can assure you. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not a trillion anyway. No. So he's been up there 22 days after the damage. Yeah. Uh, he says he is going to do extra efforts and he's looking to, uh, how could you say, go further maybe to next year to, to prevention. But he needs to look at Holland. He's got to look at the Netherlands, what they've done. They constructed dams, barriers, permanent construction. We've only got temporary. The only permanent thing we've got is the flood barrier of London. The rest, there's nothing. They've got to start thinking of a more permanent solution like the Netherlands have done. They've been doing that for years, and that's what Boris Johnson... Are people bitter that uh, Boris Johnson didn't turn up for 22 days? If I was flooded, frankly, the presence of the Prime Minister uh, would be the least of my worries. Yeah, well, he did turn up today uh, in good spirits, I believe, and he did pay a visit to one or two houses. He's promised to double the budget, as I said. And he's also promised to look into extending it for the future. But he's got to look at proper constructional dams, yeah. proper canalways to get rid of this water. It's not con even though they're getting rid of the water now, it'll just come back. There's nothing much holding it, much holding it apart from temporary flood barriers. They need to look at the Netherlands. They've got to look at proper dams, yeah. proper constructions to keep these people and the people's houses dry. Okay, good uh, point. Uh, John, thanks for the update. Maria Josefa do Espirito Santo says, Good afternoon, world. Hi, George, from Sao Paulo in Brazil. Maria, what a wonderful message. Thank you. Tommy Edge says, The first book I ever read 
the ragged trousered philanthropist. The other is buried in a porter's grave. The author, rather, is buried in a porter's grave. That should be pauper's grave. 500 yards from me in Liverpool. He made a big influence on me at 15 years old. Who could believe? You're right, Tommy. And that's about the age I was uh, when I read The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. And I'll be coming on to that in just a minute. Last call from Ian in Hounslow. Ian, go ahead. Uh, good evening, George. I just wanted to tell you, yesterday I went to a conference hosted by London CND by, at SOAS on ethical foreign policy. And there were some very interesting speakers there from Iraq and Iran. Uh, and there were quite old guys who veteran politicians and uh, campaigners for civil rights. Uh, and they were saying that there are orphanages being set up in Syria for the children of uh, rape by ISIS. I don't know if you knew about that. I do, yeah. If yeah, you think about also, it, the, uh, rape by ISIS and these other uh, also pious Muslims uh, yeah, has, been a weapon, has been a weapon of war. Also, um, they said about that there was a um, crisis in Iran with the coronavirus due to the sanctions following the fallout of the nuclear deal. And this is a crime against the Iranian people. Uh, they're, they're holding the Iranian people responsible for the actions of their government. And that's why there's a serious problem of a pandemic in Iran at the moment. Well, uh, it is particularly serious uh, in Iran, in South Korea, where, of course, there are no sanctions, uh, and in China, uh, where there's a trade war, but no uh, meaningful sanctions that have impacted on this situation. So I don't think that coronavirus can be in any way linked to sanctions, as you'll find out when it sweeps across the United States, as I right. predict it will. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, your ability to resist illness your ability to control public health uh, dangers in this way is seriously affected by sanctions. And if the United States wanted to do the right thing, they would announce at least the suspension of their sanctions on Iran whilst this <laughs> coronavirus emergency continues. Ian, I'm sorry, okay. we've run okay. out of uh, power. Thanks very much for that call. Uh, there's only time for me to announce the Moats Book Club. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to pick a book and you're going to suggest them. Uh, and you can do that through Twitter. You can do it by phone call on the show. You can do it by writing to me. Uh, your suggestions will be very much taken on board. I'm not selling books in any way. I don't have the capacity to do that. But I am encouraging you to read The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist by Robert Tressel. You can get it in any good bookshop. You can get it online. I hope you can get it for free in your public library. But I want you all to read it because it is a book which made me what I am and made many, many people in this country what they are. It is a book which, though written uh, well over a hundred years ago, could have been written today the exact same economic and social divisions described in this book apply today. The exact same scares about people different to us, in this case, when this book was written, Jewish refugees, Jewish exiles living in Britain could be described today 
but with different faces, different names. But the tropes remain the same. The division between the rich and the poor, between the workers and those they work for, the insecurity of the lives of the mass of the population compared to the luxury and cruelty of those who have everything remains exactly the same. As a piece of work, this unemployed house painter, Robert Tressel, buried in a pauper's grave in Liverpool, which I'll visit next weekend, is a masterpiece. In four weeks' time, once you've all read it, we'll have a proper discussion on it with an expert, and we'll take calls and other communications, other observations that you have made about it. That's the launch of the Moats Book Club. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, in the same place, and bring somebody else with you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.